0: one of the critical things for us to understand is our brain is a prediction engine and when we can't predict the outcome based on all of our past experiences our past experiences are called prior beliefs so when we can't predict what's going to happen we produce this thing called free energy and free energy is what you feel going through your body it's a bad thing so it's it's all this excess energy because our brain doesn't know what's going to happen next. And this is where all the anxiety from COVID, for instance, came, particularly in the spring. You know, people had no idea what to expect. There was all this uncertainty, and this uncertainty leads us to feel disempowered. Welcome to the Forging Metal podcast. With your blacksmiths, Tara
1: O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. I'm going to start our podcast this week with a little, just a real quick story. When you talk about mental toughness and all the things that we like to talk about on the, on the podcast and, and being a performance coach myself, you can't talk about those things without first talking about fear. I mean, that is really a, a big, you know, maybe an obstacle in a lot of people's lives. And so when I do a lecture with my students at the university, I start the lecture with a question, has fear ever held you back in your life? And for all the listeners, you guys can play along, raise your hand if fear has held you back in life. And I think as you would guess, most hands go up, right? And so I push back a little gently and I say, it's not fear that's held you back. It's your relationship with fear that has held you back. And by the way, I steal that. That's not my original wording. It comes from another author and I forget his name, but, but anyway, it's a relationship with fear that I think holds us back. And, and we're going to dig into that today. It's going to be so fun to, to talk to our guests about what that relationship looks like and possibly how you can use fear as fuel. And so I also don't want you to tune out and say, okay, this is just for extreme athletes and people that climb big mountains and, and, and fly airplanes upside down. That's not the deal here. You know, we all face fear in some way maybe it's a a new job promotion, or maybe it's a presentation or public speaking. We all have that fear of that. Maybe it's as simple as asking that attractive stranger out for coffee, which if you're like me, that's terrifying. And so we face this, right? We face this fear of rejection, embarrassment, maybe failure on a pretty regular basis. So I think that's why this conversation is going to be relevant to us all. I'm excited to hear what our guest has to say about how we can manage this better. And that guest is Patrick Sweeney, author of the book, Fear as Fuel. I would say that I'm about halfway through this book and I I can't put it down. And so I'm really devouring it and love what, what Patrick has to say about it. So, you know, who is Patrick to talk to us about fear? Is he some kind of subject matter expert? I would say yes. You look at his background and you go, okay, as I like to say, he's done a little field research in this. He knows a little bit about fear, pain, and discomfort. He's, he's kind of got a crazy resume of adventure racing. Being on the winning team of the 2018 Race Across America, he's a multiple-time successful entrepreneur, Olympic-level elite athlete at one point in rowing, and a world record holder on his mountain bike. He tries to take his mountain bike, by the way, up, up really big mountains, which is just mind-blowing to me. So I think this is gonna be a fun conversation for us to kind of look at fear and maybe in a different way. And so our guest is joining us today from France. I I think this is gonna be our first international guest. And I said, okay, how how can I practice some French? So without further ado, that's the only word I know in French, I guess. Without further ado, welcome to The Forge, Patrick.
0: Merci beaucoup, Ron, and uh, merci beaucoup, Tara. Now there's some real French, there you go. Little bit. All right. The French people are probably laughing at me now. That's
1: all right. That's all right. Hey, you know, I always say that they they get. I've traveled a little bit internationally, and I think they even if you butcher it, they they like that you make the effort to uh, speak Absolutely. their language. So.
2: Not in Paris, Ron. Not in Paris.
1: <laughs> this is true. This is true. Oh, where where yeah, are it's you just at? Just
2: fodder to make fun of you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Where are you, Patrick, in, in France?
0: I am in the extreme sports capital of the world, Chamonix, France, which is nice. right at the base of Mont Blanc. So, you mean, um,
1: isn't it Champagne?
0: No, no, no. Champagne, Champagne's a few hours away.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. I'm
0: oh, get, so I'm jealous. A what
2: a great, great area. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's Amazing. awesome. All
1: right, let's 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 start with this. You know, if I were to ask people, you know, what's your definition of fear I'd probably get a lot of different answers. And I'd probably get a lot of people that really didn't know how to answer that question of what, what exactly, I mean, you sense what fear is, but what is it really? And so I think to get on the same page as we start this podcast to talk really a lot about fear, what is, you know, I would say, Patrick, what is, what is fear in your mind? And, and why is your book called fear is fuel, you know, will we'll lay a little groundwork there. And then, yeah. you know, as I like to ask my students, is fear necessary? I sometimes ask them, would we be better off without it? And so all of those, I know that's a, there's several peppered questions in there, but what, what would you say to all of those,
0: Patrick? Sure, Ron. Well, I think the best way is that fear is the most powerful, yet least understood force in our life. And And just like you said, a lot of people don't even know how to answer that question. But when you create a relationship with fear, you live the most amazing life imaginable so if your listeners out there if all your dreams haven't come true if you if you think you haven't reached your potential yet it's probably not because of will or because of skill it's because of fear because fear sets these artificial ceilings on on what we do or what we think we can do and then when we start to feel fear fear isn't an emotion it's a, it's a category of emotions or an emotional response, physical response to something that's happening in your brain. And we can talk an awful lot about that, but I think the key thing to understand, you asked where fear is fuel comes from. I spent most of my life, the first 30 years of my life being a complete wimp. And I was terrified of everything The the most, uh, Petrifying of all was the idea of flying because I saw a plane crash when I was a child and 100 people died at Logan Airport and that planted the seed of, of terror that grew into a whole tree inside my my psyche and up until 30. I had so much guilt and so much shame and, and so much fear going on and I never wanted people to know it. So I was always trying to build this, this image, this cocoon around me that I was a big tough guy and I wasn't afraid of anything. And when it came to, oh, do you want to fly? Do you want to do this exchange program? Do you want to go to this family reunion? Do you want to go to spring break? I'd always come up with some you know, bullshit excuse about why I couldn't do it. And it was all came down to fear. And then at 30 years old, we can, we can talk about it. And in my thirties, some things happened and all of a sudden I faced the ultimate fear. And, And when I did, and when I created this new relationship with fear, my entire life changed. And what I discovered is, as we can get into in the podcast is all of your dreams are on the other side of fear. And you'll never realize that until you start to take fear, you start to recognize it, embrace it, and then run towards it. And it, it's, it sounds crazy if you're sitting at home and you know, you're thinking about that, that good looking guy at the gym or that, you know, that speech that you want to make or the presentation you have to do at work. But I, I promise everyone who's listening, if you create a relationship with fear and you embrace fear, you will find that your life changes dramatically.
2: Well, let me ask you because, you know, you brought it up in your thirties, you had a near death experience with leukemia and that's what you're talking about. Does it take a near death experience? Do you think to switch your relationship with fear and build a positive relationship? Or do you think, you know, can other people do that in other ways?
0: So Tara, that, that was exactly what I set out to find out. So I was started my second company and I uh, was a tech entrepreneur. I should have been having the time of my life. I had amazing employees. We got all these wonderful awards. We were the top con- company in our industry. And you, you know, it looked like this storybook life, but I was so full of anxiety and, and fear that I, I had this low level of the stress hormone called cortisol constantly coursing through my brain, uh, through my body. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was. But it felt horrible. So the only way I could deal with it or that I thought to deal with it was drinking. So I'd, I'd start, you know, usually five or six o'clock uh, in the afternoon, you know, and I'd be working generally till eight or nine. And then I'd go out to some venture capital event or networking event. And by the time I rolled home at 1230 or one o'clock at night, I'd, I would have had six or seven beers. And this is every day and probably twice that on the weekends. And so this low level of cortisol, this anxiety, and and all this drinking, you know, of course, I'd have to wake up at like five o'clock in the morning to go sweat it out because that whole Irish Catholic guilt thing. (laughs) So, you know, I was getting hardly any sleep, just abusing my body. And and not surprisingly, that lifestyle led, I firmly believe that led to me getting leukemia and when i I went to my local doctors you know they said we don't know what it is but you've got no white blood cells you've got no immune system we aren't equipped to deal with it here we're going to get you an emergency entry into johns hopkins and when i got up to hopkins my my daughter was a year old and she went to stay with the grandparents went up to hopkins and they did a bunch of tests and then you know dr mcdale came in and he said he said look I think you really should probably put your affairs in order and say your goodbyes because we've never seen this and we don't know what's going on. And it was at that point when I thought, holy shit, I'm about to die. And I looked back on my life and all I felt was just this gnawing sense of regret. And, and I, felt, I felt like I wasted and I had so many amazing opportunities and, you know, with, with companies, with athletics, with, you know, the, the incredible things that I never took advantage of because of fear and I saw them all when I thought I was dying and, and I had an operation and after the operation, I actually thought there was a moment. It was like that poltergeist moment, right? Everything sort of went black and staticky. I, I didn't hear the little voice saying, stay away from the light Carol land, <laughs> but, but, but everything else happened. And, and it was at that point when I, I said, if I ever get out of here, So by the way, I forgot to mention my wife at the time was six months pregnant. Oh my God. And you know, my daughter was at her grandparents' house. And I said, if I ever get out of here, my daughter deserves a guy who's not too afraid to get on a plane and take her to Disney. I wasn't that guy. I wasn't that daddy. But when I got out, I became that daddy. And that was because of this near-death experience, because I had this incredible opportunity, this gift to be able to look back at my life at the end and think, what could I do different? And then I got a second chance. So the, the idea of you almost dying does give you a second chance at life. It does give you an incredible amount of courage if you if you accept it and, and you start to look at it that way. There's two other ways that you can eliminate fear or learn to embrace fear, really, is a, is a better way of saying it and learn to, to create this great relationship with fear. And so what I wondered... So after I got out, I, I started taking flying lessons like Ron and something incredible happened. The first lesson I was terrified. Like I I peed four times before we even got out (laughs) to the plane. And, and I remember everything in technicolor HD, like super saturated because When you get in this fearful response, we we have, we produce this fear cocktail that makes us better able to fight or flee. And so your, your senses become better, you get more oxygen into your brain, all these physiological changes take place, and you're a better capable, more highly capable human being. So that happened. The second flight we went over the Blue Ridge Mountains and we hit some turbulence. And that's when I actually think I pooped myself. Not, not a lot, just a little bit. Just a little. And so after, <laughs> after that, something incredible happened. I fell in love with flying. So I got my private license. I got my instrument rating. I got a seaplane license. I went on to get my commercial rating. And like Ron, now I compete in aerobatics doing exactly what talking about would have just terrified me 15 years ago. And so I wanted to figure out what, what the hell happened in my mind? How did that switch get flipped? How did, how did that change take place? And I was on a charity bike ride up in Boston and ended up riding for about 70 miles with a neuroscientist from Tufts University. And I explained to him what happened. He said, come on into my lab, let me show you what we're doing. And he taught me all about this thing called the amygdala, this little gland in the base of our brain. And I was fascinated. He said, oh, you should go see what Scott Orr over at Harvard is doing with PTSD. And I went and saw Scott. And Scott said, oh, you should go see Anna Byler at MIT. She's, she's shown the relationship between shortcuts and, and valence in our, ma- our brain. Anna said, oh, you got to talk to Earl Miller in our lab. He's doing all this stuff on attention and working memory. And after three or four of these introductions, I was learning all this amazing stuff about how the brain works. And nobody, no one in mainstream had ever talked about it or put it in ways that people could understand it. And when I started to understand how the brain works, I started to understand how we can change it and adjust it and, and tune it, just like you know, getting to know a car or getting to know your, your computer or something like that. Once you learn how to do these things, you can change it and you can use it. We can, we can literally reprogram our brain, which is what the reason I put the book after interviewing three dozen of the world's top neuroscientists. Took me six years of research to do this book. But what I've put together is all their research in a way that people can take this 2 million year old piece of software that we're running on the amygdala and completely reprogram it to serve us better. in in modern days,
1: you know, I, I'm certainly, I geek out on neuroscience as well. And, and I'm certainly, I don't have any degrees in that, but, but I do teach a class. And as, as my listeners know in neuroleadership, where I take, you know, neuroscience and apply it to leadership. So that is, is a fun topic. I want to pause and back up just a little bit because I want really, you know, Tara works with entrepreneurs a lot and I do a little bit as well. And, and a lot of these entrepreneurs are, are, they're daydreaming about that millionaire lifestyle that you had in your thirties. I mean, going out to the the parties and, and, and you talk about flying on private jets and, you know, all this stuff that you were doing a lot of these young entrepreneurs, that's what they see as this Holy grail of where they want to be. And so you were living this and and your cautionary tale is this was killing me. And so I want, you know, I tell my, my students and my, my clients, if you don't pay attention to the signals your body is giving you, it's going to shut you down. And in yeah. your case, that was leukemia. And, and maybe there's no proof that, that your lifestyle led to that, but, but you certainly have a strong sense that, that it did. So I, I just want to Absolutely. reemphasize this point that if you're one of those entrepreneurs, take care of yourself. Uh, no amount of money is worth your health, at least in my opinion. So that's fascinating. All right. So let's go back to hey, this. Hey, Ron, Ron,
0: let me- go ahead. Ron, let me let me just amend that just with a quick couple of things I saw from my research, and I've worked with over 500 CEOs worldwide now. And having that balance you talk about with body, mind, and soul is absolutely critical. And and I, I go into a lot of practices and sort of morning routine, evening routine, cold showers, exercise, all that type of stuff. And and that's a huge, very valuable part of anyone's lifestyle from kids to you know retired people. The key thing I think about the the entrepreneurial lifestyle, you can apply to Navy SEALs, you can apply to Olympic or professional athletes, you can apply to entrepreneurs, and that comes down to motivation. So if your motivation is, you know, you want to hop on a private jet and go to Kid Rock's Christmas party, then that motivation is going to end up killing you. If your motivation is, hey, I want to change the world. I want to you know, get us out of a, a linear economy into a circular economy and save the planet. I want to win this gold medal because my mom and dad gave up their retirement so I could train. We, it, there's literally a, a woman in Georgetown University named Abigail Marsh, who's done tons of studies. She's a neuroscientist and she's done tons of studies on motivation. And when you have an altruistic motivation, when you're doing something good for other people, it helps you. It helps you physically. It helps you mentally perform as well. So entrepreneurs out there, you know, I, every time I do a talk, inevitably people come up to me and they say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And the first thing I say is, no, you want to be a successful entrepreneur <laughs> because, <laughs> because being an entrepreneur really sucks because you're working twice as hard for half the money. So you want to be a successful entrepreneur? And I said, why? So that's the question. And I think that's why uh, guys like Simon Sinek have done so well, helping people find their why and find their their purpose and find what it is that's going to drive them to that ultimate performance, because it's not, uh, you know, it's not being backstage. It's not going to to ringside fights. It's not, you know, any of that stuff.
1: What would your your version of yourself before leukemia, what would you have said to me if I said, Patrick? what you're doing right now is going to, is, is not good for you. And you need to, you need to be more altruistic. Would you have just blown me off? Because I feel like a lot of people would, do we need that? Do we need that near death experience to flip the switch?
0: No, I I think we need a, a level of mental maturity and we need to, to have a level of confidence that comes when you don't have fear Right. Because because if you're saying that that, you know, I want to be driving the one hundred and fifty thousand dollar Hummer and I want to you know, I want to pull up and park in front of the restaurant on top of the curb in front of the Lamborghini. Right. You know, I want to I want to do that because what you're doing is is covering up some internal fears that you have you're covering up what i call your fear frontier and that's that's just there there's you know really two ways and you see this in everything like a lot of the special forces guys i work with the ones who make it through aren't the ones who need that bravado aren't the ones who need to have it there most of the guys and and i know tara has a military background the the special forces guys who are who are in it for life who who do really well they're they're the most laid back calm you know i would say sort of passive people you'd ever meet you never see anyone get uptight and you never see them get bent out of shape and i think that's because they're, they're not trying to, to cover up all that shame they have or all that guilt. And, and that's a key part of it.
2: Before we move on, I actually want you to paint a picture for us because I, I think we have, it's a unique opportunity to have you who, you were living the life that so many of our listeners are living right now, whether they're stay-at-home parents or they're entrepreneurs or they're Olympic athletes. And I think the thing with fear and shame And anxiety is that we don't always know when we're in it and we don't always know that we need to make a change. We just know something is not letting us sleep at night. Something is keeping us awake and doesn't feel good. Can you paint the picture of what that felt like for you so that maybe people can kind of relate to, oh, that's what I'm feeling as well. So, so we can start to make that change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Tara, it's, it's, it's so easy for me to do, Once you get in tune with it. So it is a a tremendous feeling of scarcity. So I I don't have enough time to do this. I I should be focusing on finishing this up, but I've got this call that I have to make. Well, before I do that, you know, this guy left me a message. I got to get back to him. Wait a minute. This we've got this product test going on over here. I got to jump in there see how it's going. Oh, my God, you know it's it's six o'clock. Oh, fuck, I just gotta have a I'll, I'll have a quick drink and then move on and you know I can stay here. I promise my wife I get home by seven, but uh, there's no way that's happening. So it was that constant state of not having enough time, not having enough resources, not having, you know, as soon as, as soon as we landed the biggest contract in RFID that had ever been let at, at my company, Odin, all I could think about was we don't have enough people to deliver. It was the DOD's contract for all their defense distribution centers. And all I could think of, we don't have enough people to deliver. Our software hasn't been tested that well. You know, it was, it was always fear of the future. And it was always a concern for what was going to happen tomorrow or next week or a month from now. So I never took the time to be present. So I never could sit back and and say, you know, we would have celebrations when we won big contracts or whatever. But inside my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, is, you know, is that lead developer? Is he happy? Because he's been acting a little bit funny. So I'm going to project a, a horrible movie about him leaving right at crunch time. And, you know, this this. The customer didn't return my call the same day. God, is he out talking to other suppliers, right? Everything, everything was projected to this negative image in the future. So it was never about being present or, or as you guys have talked about in a number of podcasts, it was never about being mindful in, in the moment. And, and that feeling, you know, I can feel it now talking about it. I, I, I'm, I'm starting to, to get that tightness in my chest. I'm, I'm starting to, to take little short, shallow breaths. And we all have something that I call our fear tells. So when the amygdala activates, the amygdala is that little gland at the base of our brain called the lizard brain and, and it's, it's fully developed at birth. And it creates one of three things, fight, flight, or freeze. Now, my, my teenage boys say when they get scared, they fart. So I should tell people it creates fight, flight, freeze, or fart. So, <laughs> so that's the technical definition for it from them. But, but when you create that, that amygdala hijacking, when something gets you scared and your amygdala activates, it's trying to predict what happens in the future that's the the, one of the critical things for us to understand is our brain is a prediction engine and when we can't predict the outcome based on all of our past experiences our past experiences are called prior beliefs so when we can't predict what's going to happen we produce this thing called free energy and free energy is what you feel going through your body it's a bad thing so it's it's all this excess energy because our brain Doesn't know what's going to happen next. And this is where all the anxiety from COVID, for instance, came, particularly in the spring. You know, people had no idea what to expect. There was all this uncertainty. And this uncertainty leads us to feel disempowered. And when we feel disempowered, that's exactly what I was describing. I felt that all the time. And, and so you have cortisol, you have DHEA, you have adrenaline, all these things running through your body, creating these fear tells. Now, a lot of people, including me with alcohol, get really good at numbing them out. So, so we might be feeling, there's might be a lot of entrepreneurs who are feeling that stress, feeling that anxiety, feeling that, that lack of time, the lack of money, the lack of resources, feeling that scarcity, but they numb it out somehow or another by by drinking by doing drugs by by shopping by sex whatever it is they find some coping mechanism to cover it up and instead that early warning system we have which was originally designed for danger can actually be an early warning system for opportunity and it can be if we start to recognize when our when our amygdala starts to activate one of two things can happen we can either make a decision out of fear because we want to get get away from it or we can make a decision out of opportunity every decision we make in our life can be boiled down to those two things either we make it out of fear or we make it out of opportunity most people when they feel that fear those fear tells when they feel that changes when they start to breathe heavy when you when you start to get your jaw tight or butterflies in your stomach we think oh my god i gotta run away to safety i gotta go back to my cave because that's what we were designed to do When just the opposite is true, what you're seeing is the path to the garden of Eden, but because it's uncertain and we don't know it, we, we shy away from it. So, so feeling that feeling can be our opening for opportunity.
2: Tell me how you do it. When you hit that, when you hit that, that fear and that feeling, because you're very familiar with it, how do you make the switch to opportunity?
0: So, so that the base method that I talk about in my book is really how I've boiled it down to an easy to remember. I've, I've got 10 different things that, that we go through in the book, but the critical one and the one that I teach everyone right off the bat is the base methodology. And it's an acronym B A S E. And the first B is breathing. And the breathing that I teach is called a four by four. So you breathe in for a count of four You hold it for a count of four, and then you let it out for a count of four, then you hold it out for a count of four, and then back in. So the seals are taught this breathing during sniper camp. They call it box breathing because it's four, 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 you know, around a square. And the breathing, just just doing that, I have CEOs all over the world doing two or three minutes of four by fours every morning when they first wake up. So what I tell everyone to do, when you wake up in the morning, first of all, thank God or thank Allah or thank Buddha or thank the universe that you're alive, have a little moment of gratitude, and then do three or four minutes of four by fours, Just, just that breathing. And literally within the first week, neuroscience has proven that's going to change the cellular structure of your brain. And, and when you get to a point where you're stressed and where you have this tons of anxiety, then what's going to happen is you start doing the four by fours and our brain has two ways of receiving data. And when you start to do a four by four, you're doing what neuroscientists call bottoms up information gathering so when if your brain thinks you're under threat you would expect your breathing to accelerate you would expect your heart rate to increase if all of a sudden you're breathing steady and it's normal your brain thinks okay we must not be under threat so that bottoms up information that you're gathering overrides the the top-down information so the first thing you do is breathe and that stops the amygdala hijacking the a is to assess the situation so you look at things from afar I can talk about the S and the E a little bit more in a minute, but Tara, I'll give you a quick example of literally in the book, I call it a Ferrari's worth of fear. I had, I, I used to have a place in Breckenridge, Colorado, and I sold it, you know, not long after I bought my place here in Chamonix and I sold a couple of the startups that I had invested in and I had a pretty big tax bill. And, you know, we did everything and we talked to the tax accountant and and that sort of thing. And she basically said, I can't remember when it was, you know, it was it was December, January or something. She said, you know, it's probably going to be 75 or or 80 grand additional in tax you're going to have to pay. And I think I got everything worked out. She sent over a PDF. And I I literally I remember I was driving on my way to the gym. She sent over a PDF. It said tax return. Sorry about the bad news. It's, and so, so I clicked on it while I was driving, which, is, always nice. which, which was not a, not a good thing to do. Not a good thing. And, and uh, she said, I had almost a $200,000 tax bill. And, and I immediately had a amygdala hijacking. I thought, Oh, for fuck's sake, I got to get to a bar. I just, I can have a beer and figure <laughs> out. And so rather than, than going to the bar, whiskey. yeah, exactly. I need a, a boiler boilermaker. <laughs> so rather than go to the bar, I pulled over to the side of the road, I literally closed my eyes and I started breathing and I started looking at the situation. i just pretended that, that I'm watching a movie. And when we watch a movie, our brain kicks into action and we try to predict the outcome of everything that's going to happen. That's why movies are fun because there's, you know, the, there's surprises and there's low, you know, low risk outcomes. It's why we don't want to know the score of a game that already happened. If we're going to rewatch the replay, right? All, all these things are from a neuroscience perspective called novelty or, or surprise And so I pulled over, I did the breathing and I thought, you know what, I've invested in 50 startups and at least 15 or 20 have gone on a business over the past two or three years. And I never did anything about it. I you know, wish the entrepreneurs well. And that was it. And I thought I could take those write offs. So I called up my accountant and I said, I said, hey, listen, I've got, you know, this this company, this company, that company. These all went out of business. Here's how much I invested. What can we do? And she said, well, do you have stock certificates and do you have their dissolution documents? And I said, yeah, I'm sure I can find all that. So spent the night going through those documents, got it to her the next day, cut the tax bill by about 125 grand. Wow! And so the old me would have been the one running to the bar bitching and moaning about you know, what a victim I was. My, my, my accountant, fuck's sake, she told me it was gonna be you know, $100,000. It turned out to be $250,000. She's useless, I'll get rid of her. You know, I would have been the victim mentality. But instead, taking that fear and saying, you know, I'm really afraid because we're going to do this renovation on the house and, the, you know, this is can't afford to f- pay this cash, blah, blah, blah. I sat back, I did the base methodology and I, I worked through it and it turned into a great opportunity. You know, I used those write offs I didn't have, I got out of that tax bill. And that's, that kind of stuff happens to me all the time, Tara, because when I feel that amygdala activation, I know there's an opportunity here. If, if I just take the time and, and I can reset that, again, that 2 million-year-old software, there's something uncertain happening. There's something that I don't recognize, and that could be a very good thing. And what our default is, everybody's default, The professional athletes and, and you know, special ops guys, everybody's default tends to be something bad. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Think, think about that, and, and that's going to be my future. So if you can change that mindset using this base methodology or just, just using the breathing, and, and the other, you know, the S has two components to it, but the really easy and fun one is to smile. So, so this study at Emory University found they had two groups of kids. They had like a thousand kids, and they split them in two groups to watch horror movies. One group, they gave a chopstick. And they should clamp it in your teeth like that. They didn't want to tell them to smile because they thought they might think about something positive or something good, but they want them to flex those 42 muscles in their face. So they gave them a chopstick and they found something incredible. The chopstick group reduced their level of cortisol, that stress hormone by 80% just by smiling. (laughs) Well, I think the the important
1: thing there, Patrick is, even forcing a fake smile actually has that effect. Is that, is that right?
0: That, that, that's the whole key to it, Ron. Even if you don't, you know, the old adage, grin and bear it, that's a a scientifically proved maxim for sure. And, and, you know, when, when I'm doing acro or if I take someone for a, you know, a pretty fun flight, I'll, I'll I'll tell them, listen, if you feel sick, start smiling.
1: (laughs) It's funny because I, I I I mess around with this in my endurance athlete athletic world. When I'm feeling a lot of pain, I force myself to smile, and it actually helps yeah. me to to get through that pain better. So that, and I also do breathing exercises. I love that. I, I do. By the way, I do the four by four. I do that every morning, and so I, I'm awesome. certainly a big uh, proponent of that. You know. Let's go back a little bit here because you were talking about all these things, this idea of living in scarcity and, and then also feeling this fear and, and, and well, number one, let, let's start with that. You feel this scarcity. And I think a lot of people wouldn't recognize that as fear, but, but I think we're, we we should be clear on this idea that that is fear and it's just, maybe yeah, it's hidden from absolutely. you, but, but I think that's, that's important to reiterate that with, with the audience, uh, the listeners that that is fear. And so pay attention pay attention when yeah. those things are going on. And, and by the way, as a coach, and I think Tara would agree with me every time I say, okay, let's talk about doing something different in your life. And the number one answer I usually get is I don't have enough time. Right. And, yeah. and so that is, as you say, Patrick, that is, that is maybe fear being hidden from us. So let me go back. You know, I, the, you talk about the three F's of, of the, basically the amygdala, the fight, flight, or uh, freeze. I've also heard people say you can throw on two other F words, food and fuck. Yeah. And, yep. and I always say that the amygdala, is, is its job is to keep you alive long enough to reproduce. That's, that's why I like to look at it. So that kind of gives you an idea Absolutely. of what the amygdala is doing to us. Or, or and, and by the way, it's useful. It, it, it's something we need. But so you talk about in the book. So the amygdala gets activated. And this is going to go back to your story of you having to pull over to the side of the road. So the amygdala gets activated. And you talk about this idea that, that are kind of our default is to go into survival mode and make single level decisions yeah. and what we really want to do is kind of expand on that and so can you talk about what is a single level decision and and where is the you know what you did in that situation you took it to another level and what does that look like
0: yeah so so Ron I think you know you hit it right on the head that the amygdala doesn't care about our happiness. It doesn't care about relationships. It doesn't care about, about learning how to fly or, or drive in a Ferrari or any of that stuff. All it cares about is survival and, and procreating our race onto the next generation. And, and because of that, if, if you're aware of that, I think you, you know, you start to understand what's happening because the only decision the amygdala tries to make is to eliminate a potential threat. And once that threat's eliminated, it's, it, it's fine. And, and we can see this, you know, you see this in Boston or New York or, or DC when you're driving on the highway and, you know, someone cuts you off or you get cut off by someone, all of a sudden you see someone who looks like your grandmother flipping you the bird. <laughs> you're thinking, you know, if you take the time to, to go to that second level decision and think, okay, well, why did she just flip me the bird? Or why did I just flip the bird to my grandmother? And, and you think, maybe there's a secondary there, there's a secondary cause positive, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe you think that there's a, a secondary cause to her behavior, and you start to think through those secondary causes, and then you start to think through those tertiary causes. And, and the critical thing is when the amygdala is activated and it's taking over what's called our working memory, so we've got something in the newest part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex that isn't fully developed until we're in our early 20s so the amygdala is fully developed at birth and we've got that fight flight or freeze from day one so we keep practicing with that our default is to defense And when anything happens, we default to defense because it's all we know until we're, until we hit puberty. And then we start to develop this prefrontal cortex, which is the rational thinking, the planning part, the the logical part of our brain. So we can use that to start to plan different steps. Okay, if I get a pilot's license, then that means I can go to really cool places. I can get in the industry. I could have a potential career. It's going to open up all these doors to me. Instead of, you know, if I go near that plane, it might crash and, and I might die and that's I'm going to eliminate that threat and get out of it. And, and instead we're going two or three levels down, but you can only do that if you take the amygdala's app off of your working memory. So the working memory is just like a smartphone. You can have thousands of applications that you can put on it, but only one at a time on the screen. And so when the amygdala takes over that working memory, it's fight, flight, or freeze, or, you know, the other two Fs, as you said. And when, the, when, the, when we have a chance to clear out the working memory and get, the, get those three Fs off of there, we can put in whatever app we want. So now we can install a strategic planning app. We can install a peak performance app. We can install a, a loving kindness app. And But that takes control to be able to know when to, to pull over to the side of the road, start your breathing, you know, start to play this movie in your mind, eliminate these shortcuts that our mind tends to make. So one of the things that our mind is really good at, and this is why we survived for millions of years, is when we sense threat, we do something that's called valence. And valence is the choice between deciding whether something's good or something's bad. And we only use half of our brain to do it. So when we see someone who looks like we want to mate with and procreate because they're part of our tribe, but our, our genetic differences are good enough so we won't have you know, screwed up offspring, then that takes the shortcut to the right, or sorry, to the left side of our brain. And we think it's good. We see someone who's not from our tribe, who might try to kill us, and might try to steal our food or our women. Then that goes to the right, the left side of our brain, and is bad. So we we have this valence that we split in between, and we only use one hemisphere, half of our brain, to do that. So we're literally using half of our processing power when we make these split-second survival decisions, and they don't serve us at all in today's world. I mean, you know, occasionally if you're if you're stepping out in front of a bus or something like that, fear can be good. Or if someone's, you think, following you through a parking lot, fear can be good, like you said, Ron. But for the most part, we have those judgments all the time about people. And and if we want to live an amazing life, we have to replace all of our judgments with curiosity. And that requires us stopping and thinking consciously because we make 80% of our decisions every day subconsciously. So if we stop and, and we, we call it out and we think about, okay, what can I admire about this person I just made a judgment about? How can the opposite of the story I'm telling myself be true as well? And then what you're doing is you're populating your future past. Because all of our subconscious decisions, I know that sounds a little trippy, <laughs> yeah. but all of our subconscious decisions are made based on our prior beliefs, based on every experience we've had in our life. So, me growing up, you know, white Irish Catholic in uh, Boston, blue collar suburbs, if I walked into Starbucks when I was 18 years old and I saw some guy who looked like he was a victim of a drive by piercing and had tattoos all over himself, I'd say, man, what is wrong with that freak? Right. That's my initial judgment, because he's not part of my tribe, because no one in my family had their eyebrow pierced or their tongue pierced or anything like that. So I'd immediately make a judgment. Now, if I was to stop and say, "Okay, what can I admire about that guy, then what's going to happen is I can I can think, well, he must have a tremendous threshold for pain right? Because I could never do that. And he probably doesn't care about what other people think about him. So he's super confident and that's great. So those two great things. Now I have a totally different mindset when I go to approach him, but more importantly, when I go into the next Starbucks and I see a guy that looks like him or a woman that looks like him, I think, oh, wow, I'm going to, I want that barista because the last experience I had was great. Because now one of my prior beliefs is that that person who didn't look like part of my tribe is someone who's here to help me, who's here to serve me, who's here to make my life even better, instead of sticking with those negative judgments, which you see people all all the time doing, especially politicians and press.
2: Okay, after all of that, I'm just going to say go out and buy the book fear is fuel. I mean, six years of research that Patrick has put into all of the neuroscience behind fear and anxiety, and everything we've been talking about here. But aside from the book, Patrick, how else can people follow what you're doing and and learn more from you?
0: Well, guys, you might be the first podcast I get to share this on. The Audible version of Fear is Fuel is coming out in uh, 2021, and it is absolutely incredible. So we have a, a Boston sports star who's helping me with the reading, and then each chapter we have a special guest, sort of kind of a mini podcast at the end of it. That the person's either from the chapter, like Shane Murphy, the Olympic sports psychologist, who's who I talk about in the book, he comes on and, and does a, a little bit at the end of his chapter to just like your, your last guest, I've got Laurie Coffey, who's the, one of the first women F-18 pilots as well. So the audiobook Fear is Fuel, will come out in Q1 2021. And people can find that and lots of other information at pjsweeney.com. Which is uh, my website and we've got master classes there for parents to use neuroscience for raising brilliant kids and master classes for entrepreneurs and and athletes as well. So they can also follow me on Instagram, the fear guru, or Twitter at PJ Sweeney.
1: That's great. We'll have by the way, well, as always, we'll have that all that in the show notes. Uh and I, what a great uh great idea, Patrick, of of doing an audiobook where you throw in, you know, some, some interviews, some podcast style interviews. I, I don't think I've ever seen an audiobook that's done that. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's kind of a, that's kind of a cool gig. Um, and well and Ron, wait,
0: Wait, wait till you hear some of the stuff. It was so much fun doing it. And, and I've got, you know, like a, an hour with each guest and, and we wanted to put it to, to 10 or 12 minutes in, at the end of each chapter, And man, is it tough? Cause some of that, some of that stuff is so good. So it was really fun, fun doing it. So I know people enjoy it and get a lot out of their expertise.
1: Yeah. it's just kind of a nice little bonus. So, so I, I think that that's your, probably your entrepreneurial uh, mindset that came into play there and said, Hey, how can we do this different? So I, I, I like that, you know, as we wrap up this podcast, I, I was hoping for a good opportunity to throw this in. I'm gonna just going to throw this in because I think it's fun anyway. And, and I can do that because I'm one of the co-hosts in the book. You, you do a, a story about a F-18 uh, pilot, and you use a fictional name, which is Nick Bradshaw. And I'm, I'm not, Patrick, don't, don't give this away. But if you know who, who Nick Bradshaw is, I would say you're part of my tribe. And so I would certainly say, Patrick, you're part of my tribe. But if you don't know who it is, do a Google search and see if you can find out who Nick Bradshaw is. So I wanted to throw that in there, even though that was totally uh, kind of wedged in there. All right, so let's, let's, let's go to our signature question uh, that we like to ask all of our guests before we wrap up. Patrick, you know, how, if you, if you were to give some advice and and I would say start with going out and getting your book, I, again, I'm really enjoying it. And so I think that's a good start, but, but let's, let's, let's come away with this with something we can use. And so for all of our listeners and even for Tara and I, what can we do to, you know, kind of improve our mental toughness, resilience, and grit as we, as we live our lives?
0: Well, Ron and Terry, you guys talk about uh, a scientific approach to mental resiliency, and that's not the high school football coach or the drill sergeant, you know, get up, get and do it. That's it's something that should be accessible for all. And I'll, I'll give you two things that I'll end with. One is my email signature, which you guys have seen already. And that is "Memento momento more. And that's uh, Latin for remember your death. And I think if you are making a big decision. And you say to yourself, if I die tomorrow, what would I do in this situation? If I knew tomorrow I'm going to die, would I blow off my kid's hockey practice tonight? Or would I actually go and, and watch him play and see how he's doing and finish up that report you know, after he goes to bed? And it's a pretty easy decision in a lot of instances and so i was fortunate enough to have that near death experience that a lot of people missed but i think the momentum mori is a great one and then the other thing and, and you guys have had some guests who've touched on it but i'm not sure it, it it came across as clearly as i'd like to share it visualization is tremendously important so when you lie in bed as part of your morning practice or before you go to bed pre- practice visualizing But it's probably not what most people think. And I I spend a whole chapter in the book talking about this. A lot of people see themselves, they'll visualize winning a gold medal or they'll visualize getting the the all-star award. They'll visualize that. And in reality, the best visualization for me was always, you know, in rowing, I rode the single shell, was always when I hit a buoy. Or uh, a coach's launch you know, was, was going down the course on the other side and the wake set me off. Or someone took a big move and all of a sudden I'm in third or fourth place. And it was always visualizing something negative, something really bad and, and about to happen. and then seeing the different ways that you can recover from that. So a lot of people who visualize just this great stuff happening, they're not planting into their prior beliefs, they're not planting that element of surprise which is what causes fear and what sends us off our game. But when it does happen, if you visualized it, it's the same to our brain as if it actually happened. So when you, you know, when you get when you hit that batter in the, you know, in the 8th inning and and he takes first base, all of a sudden you say, okay, well, I visualize that. I'm going to strike out uh, the next three guys or, or, or whatever your sport happens to be or your business happens to be. So I think the key thing to add to the visualization is that you think about, all the negative stuff, and then you see, and you play, and you craft ways around it. Because when that happens, you won't be hit with that surprise. And that works in every part of life. So if you imagine a big tax bill, or if you imagine you know, COVID keeping you out of work for six months, and you see how you respond to it, then when it happens, I think I think people will be surprised at how well our brain comes up with really creative solutions and can connect a lot of dots we never thought possible.
2: Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.